welcome to Louisiana Lefty, a podcast about politics and community in Louisiana, where we make the case that the health of the state requires a strong progressive movement fueled by the critical work of organizing on the ground. Our goal is to democratize information, demystify party politics, and empower you to join the mission because victory for Louisiana requires you. I'm your host, Linda Woolard. On this episode, my conversation is with Omari Hosang, who works with Black Voters Matter in Louisiana, started ASAP, or All Streets, All People, Shreveport, and is a classic community organizer working in North Louisiana. We talk about the work Black Voters Matter is doing in concert with their partner organizations across Louisiana, and we underscore the significance of the work of these community groups in our state. If we are power building, if we are movement building, if we are making the state a better place for workers and families, this is the space in which we need to be investing our energy, our time, and yes, our dollars. I'll note that as often occurs when we're doing these remote recordings, we had some connectivity issues early in the interview. But as we talked, we did continue to troubleshoot and ended up with a better quality recording eventually. That said, if you're not already aware, we post transcripts to each episode on our website, louisianalefty.rocks, and include closed captions on our Louisiana Lefty YouTube channel. Omari Hosang, thank you so much for joining me on Louisiana Lefty today. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to be back. Well, am I back? This is actually my first time on it Louisiana your, Lefty. It is but your, we've talked before, so we I have. felt like, we you have. know. I always start with how I met my guest, and I met mm-hmm. you actually through your statewide partner calls for Black Voters Matter. And we can talk more about that in a little bit. Yes, indeed. I just wanted to let you know that I was so impressed by your calls. They're so well run. They're so well organized. And so that was a just an impressive entrance to uh, to getting to know you. Thank you. I spent a lot of time planning those. <laughs> you can tell. It's, it's very evident. <laughs> tell me what your political origin story is. What first got you interested in politics? My political origin story. I don't think that question has ever been been posed to me in that way. That's pretty cool. Well, you know, um, for me, it's always hard to answer this question because I've had the privilege and opportunity to be able to work uh, in different types of movement spaces. Um, But being able to be in those different spaces has really given me an opportunity to reflect, like, how did I really get into this work? And, you know, I I believe the best way I can answer this question is if somebody asked me, if I didn't do this work, what would I be doing? I'd probably be dead. That's to me, my origin story, my political origin story is my origin story, who I am and how I came to be, the different circumstances in terms of my growth and development, the community I'm from where I was educated and the differences and divisions between where I, where I attended school, which was a, a, a college preparatory school and what they call, we, we call it the over the mountain area in Birmingham. And so being educated there, but then living down the mountain, so to speak, 
into a community that in terms of socioeconomically looks so different. In terms of when I went to a basketball game or a football game at a cousin's school, the cultural differences that I saw emerge that also translated into people's quality of life, right? And so in that, it, it makes me think of like the, um, there's this really amazing book I got exposed to when I was a freshman at Tuskegee called Malcolm and Martin. I was actually taking the class, Malcolm and Martin. And it's a book by James Cone, who actually just recently died, but it's, it's like a worthwhile read if you're into Kingian philosophy, origin stories, you know, um, for both uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X. But Dr. King describes this, this environment called the bee's hive versus the bird's nest. And he talks about how integration introduced so many young, aspiring Black families, but really the children, to the, a bee's hive as they integrated into to mostly white spaces versus during segregation or in an all-Black environment, the bird's nest, the bird's nest that coddles and nurtures the baby birds, right, um, within the nest. And that was indicative of these all black environments, especially pre-integration. Dr. King talks about that. And the reason why for me that really resonates is because my mother, she was seeking to expose me to an environment and a, and a quality of education that she believed would help me to elevate. And that meant that in that space, I had to be proximal to whiteness, right? Proximal to, to white wealth. 2001 is when I was in, when I started middle school, like 9-11, we actually started school. I started middle school a week before 9-11. My experience as a minority person in that environment really exposed me to some, some social issues that, that I really, um, that I really think changed me. And so my senior year in high school, I was a theater nerd, thespian, so I, I was like, I'll 10 toes down in terms of theater. And I got an opportunity to do a, uh, an independent study on Lorraine Hansberry, who is like one of my heroes. She, wonderful writer, of course, her most known work is A Raisin in the Sun. Um, but she was prolific. She wrote many stage plays and she grew up in Chicago to a black middle-class family, right? And you know, her, her upbringing and her circumstances and kind of being othered in terms of the ghetto black and the middle-class black, right? Really contributed to her idea of an American dream. So I was able to do that play, which in, a, in and of itself helped me, helped me to reflect and understand my experience in an all white environment, but also gave me the ability to really do my first nonprofit thing, right? So for me, it's like there's the social justice perspective, but then there is the perspective of, of, so, uh, of the, the infrastructure through which change happens. And many times that's within the nonprofit industrial complex. And so I, through that play, we charge people a small fee and, and I was able to donate. I said, hey, I wanna donate to one of the schools that was not over the mountain. Because in Birmingham, a majority of our city schools are all black. If you attend a city school in, in Birmingham city pools, it will be a majority predominantly black school. That's just, that's how the system is, right? And so we gave to a theater program at one of those predominantly black schools um, so that they could start to be able to really build out their program. And so I was like, okay, 
you know, I'm a theater nerd, but yet my I am able to use my my privilege, right? My privilege to to change some things. And then after that, I went to Tuskegee and from there it was all uphill. Like yeah, I was just like, I was really radicalized in the all white environment in a way because of what I saw and the things I experienced, but I was sharpened and and built into the organizer in the vein of Ella Jo Baker, that was really groomed and developed at Tuskegee. From Tuskegee, between there and now, can you give me a mini bio, some career highlights that got you to Black Voters Matter? Sure, okay, so in 2013, I moved to Shreveport. I was recruited to work for an American Federation of Teachers local. For teachers. And so essentially my job was a project organizer. So I was responsible for recruiting teachers and school personnel like uh, cafeteria workers and custodians, uh, front desk, secretaries, um, everyone really except for administrators into to the union. Um, and so that's how I got my feet wet in terms of Louisiana because I actually was still living at home at the time when I came. And so I worked for Red River United and organized for them for two years, so 2016. And then after that, when I left them, I was just kind of in a place where I kind of didn't have anything to do, i.e. no job. And um, at the same time, in Shreveport, there was an uptick in violent crime. It was like out of control. It was it was in May. It was the summer. It was hot. Um, and it was just like one of those times where it was like, okay, this is getting pretty, this is getting pretty rampant, right? And so we convened a, like a team, you know, you know, when something happens in the community, we saw we saw it a lot during George Floyd. Community members come together, and we had these conversations like, what can we do? Like, what do we do? How do we do it? Um, what is the actual issue? And I noticed in these conversations, we kept, we kind of kept going in circles. You don't have nothing to do. Okay. Well, the city doesn't provide anything to do. Okay. And we don't, the programs don't have the money. Okay. And then the people who have the money don't want to help the, the issue. All right. We're back in this full circle and we haven't developed any solution. And so, you know, I, I decided to convene. I was like a newbie you know, I was like 23, 24, 25. And so people in Shreveport didn't really know me. I had been organizing for the union. So that was pretty insular. But I decided to host a community meeting. And during that meeting, it was like a Muslim minister, a lady who is like always, you know, commenting on social issues, like the lady on the block who you go and ask who to vote for. Um, some A couple of friends, one of them who was really into tech. He actually works for Apple. Like, it was just like a hodgepodge of people. It wasn't a huge group, maybe 10 or 15 people. And we had that circular conversation. But then the circle started to straighten out and it became more linear. Because what we did was we decided we wanted to leave that room, that space, with at least one solution that we would together implement. And that the thing that we landed on, because what we saw when we looked at the data was that most of the perpetrators as and victims, people who were getting killed through, by gun violence and people who were doing the shooting, they were all between the ages, majority of them were between the ages of 14 and 29. And so we were able to take this pervasive issue 
and take a chunk of it. And then as a community to develop the way that we would target it. And we decided we wanted to do a summer job training program. One that would focus not on hard skills, but soft skills. Those skills that actually get people into the door, that help them to achieve and acquire the job. Because we know that a majority of the hard skills that we learn on a job are learned on the job, right? not before the job. It's the soft skills that get us the job. And so we did that. No money. I literally lugged around a printer so that during our workshops, we could print our students' resumes. We did guerrilla marketing, right, to target and get young people, get parents to know that we were doing these free workshops every Saturday. We would provide professional introductions. We would provide resume writing. We would provide job training skills, interview skills. And then we took it even a step further in our second year. And we were connecting the young people with actual, well, actually in our first year we did it, but it was like really grassroots, like literally cutting. We had folks to um, sign up to have their yard cut. And we had a team of young, of young people going out and doing landscaping. But that second year, we were able to partner with organizations like Fire Texas, Fire Tech Systems, okay. which is like a fire ordinance organization, private company here in Shreveport. And we were actually able to attach young people with jobs. So not only provide the training, but provide the actual job. We even had a partnership with McDonald's. Every McDonald's restaurant owned by Roy Griggs um, opened up their employment process to our young people. So what that presented to us is that we as just regular everyday people can develop a program that helps to, number one, target a specific group, target the impacted people, and then create a system a pipeline, not just a program, but a pipeline that gets our young people from the starting point, which we believe the starting point is what leads to the gun violence. There's them away down a pipeline that helps them to secure something that's tangible and meaningful that can help them change their life circumstances. And so that is what became ASAP. Um, that's how ASAP was born. And ASAP is an acronym that means all street, all people. And we believe that we have to answer the question, how do we solve long-term problems with a sense of urgency? That is our goal. And so we believe in order to answer that question, first of all, we need to be in all geographies, including places where people are commonly left out of decision-making processes. And we need to engage with all people, meaning that everyone plays a role. Everyone plays a role in this work. Everybody as an ally, as an impacted person, as a researcher, as an idealist or visionary, as someone who is gonna be boots on the ground. Uh, we believe everyone. And so we, we take that theory of change and we focus on four root causes. Inequity in schools, lack of employment, health disparity, and economic disparity. And have you done did I see correctly that you've done some housing work around ASAP too? Well, not as much. Well, in, yeah, in a way, in a way, yeah, yes. Um, so what I've done is partner with Housing Louisiana and I've, I've partnered with them in a variety of ways. But the first entry point into Housing Louisiana, which I'm not sure if you, you've met the inimitable Andronika Morris with Ganoha and the Housing Triad. You should meet her now. You want to talk to somebody who is a champion for housing justice, 
and leaning into the word justice, not just housing, how affordable housing, housing justice. You got to talk to Anjanika Morris. But, you know, I was connected with the housing work when I realized I was impacted. I was impacted by cost burden. And so essentially I was paying more than 35% of my income to be able to, to sleep under a roof. And I didn't re even recognize that was even an issue. I was just kind of living with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I attended a listening session and they were talking about cost burden. They were talking about homelessness. They were talking about housing equity and the different systems, the entities, the organizations, um, the committees, um, like the Louisiana Housing Committee, um, the different entities, decision-making entities that play a role in this housing and how and what a housing crisis the state of Louisiana is in. And so through ASAP, I was able to do some grassroots, traditional grassroots organizing to identify people who have been impacted by housing issues um, and do not only advocacy around it, um, but to do organizing, which to me are two different things, and to provide mutual aid to people who are actually in need, to provide the, the need and support that they need right now, while also building the movement to advocate against the system that's causing the issue, right? We have to be able to create a system or an infrastructure that allows us to do so. So I would define my work not only with ASAP, but with Black Voters Matter as a part of that building, right? Because with Black Voters Matter, of course, you hear it and you're like, okay, it's all about vote. And you know, right now, everything is about voting, right? And it, I, I'm really glad to be able to play a role and actually play a couple of different roles in terms of housing. But first, you know, through Black Voters Matter, we're partnered with Housing Louisiana and we work um, to support their work, their electoral work that they do through their candidate interviews uh, and their trainings that they do. Um, but also in terms of just the work that they're doing to bring housing justice to the state. So they're doing work as well on beyond just voting issues. So like at our foundation, that's who Black Voters Matter is, is we're a power building organization. And so that is really our focus is to build power in marginalized communities. And so we do understand that in order to do that, that is more than a one step process, right? And so we 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 know that one of those steps are elections. It is getting out to vote and is voting with intelligence in terms of really doing our due diligence to understand for ourselves what's on the ballot and the implications of that but also helping our fellow man understand that our community members, our family members and our friends. And so, but we also know that there has to be 365 day organizing around issues like housing. So that's why we are partnered with housing Louisiana, but we're also partnered with other groups across the state who deal with other issues that impact black people in Louisiana. And so environmental justice, we're partnered with Sharon Levine, and uh, Rise St. James and the Concerned Citizens of St. John um, and others who are doing work in Cancer Alley uh, and dealing with industrial contamination and how that's causing like literal illness and cancer in Black communities. We're, we're partnering with organizations that are, are dealing with gun violence and criminal justice, mass incarceration, like decarcerate. That's how we, we came into partnership with decarcerate when they were fighting this bill but also 
statewide organizations that are dealing with providing that actual information in your hands, like Power Coalition. To me, no one really does it better than Power Coalition in terms of documenting the information that we need to know and getting it out, right? Getting that information uh, publicly accessible to where folks like me and our partners who are on the ground, who are in the communities, in those places in the rural areas where people don't want to go, where you can't get phone service, they're out there moving and building power in those urban centers that people may be afraid to go into because of community violence. We're in those streets. We're in those areas passing out those power coalition ballots. And so there's an ecosystem that we're building, not only to get people out to vote, but to get people out. We need to get people out into the community to build power together. We all have a role to play. Well, Black Voters Matter is a tremendously impressive and powerful organization, in my opinion. You've talked a little bit about this already, but from a national perspective, can you just say what the mission of Black Voters Matter is? Black Voters Matter is to build power in marginalized communities, to go into spaces that, as I mentioned before, we don't typically go into, like rural communities and urban communities, uh, and to work with grassroots partners, Black-led partners, women-led organizations um, to to provide capacity building support um, to those organizations to not only address voting rights issues and voter mobilization, but again, all the issues that impact Black communities. And so we do that um, through our mini-grant funding program. We provide mini-grants to our partners. We provide training and access to tools like the Voter Action Network so that uh, our partners can do traditional GOTV, like phone banking, um, like canvassing, knocking on doors, and being able to do it um, and target specific communities and specific people in their communities who really need that focus and that love and that attention uh, and time in order to turn out to vote. And so, you know, our second Monday calls that you you have been a part of before are one way that we work and we build movement mm-hmm. with our partners and really create, again, break the circle and create a linear movement where all of the work that we're doing, it builds it builds upon each other. We're building, like we're building a muscle and um, those calls and that that camaraderie, that community that we're creating with Black Voters Matter within our states helps us to really build that type of infrastructure, again, that's really necessary to grow, number one, our turnout from election to election, to grow the education of our voters so that they can be confident when they go to vote, and that also addresses the needs from day to day of our people and of our community. And we talked about your calls a little bit earlier. It's already a pretty large group, but who are those calls for? Mm -hmm. Can anyone sign up? Are you targeting trying to get certain groups to join? Right. So, so our statewide partner calls are calls that are for our partners, um, which our partners look like we have such a good variety uh, and diversity of partners. And so, but, but just, you know, at the foundation, they look like grassroots, black led organizations across the state who are either already doing voter engagement work or have heard about the power building and capacity building um, work of Black Voters Matter 
and seek to partner with us in their community. So every group that we've come across has either been through organic relationship building, you know, working with other people in the work. Um, I, I tend to think about partners like Dr. Chris Williams and Lafayette with the United Ballot Pack and Lee, Louisiana, who has created his own grassroots ecosystem of other organizations in that area, like the NAACP and Sunvesca um, and the Unity Church and so many different other organizations. And so when we show up with our Blackest Bus in America to Lafayette, Dr. Chris has worked with folks who are in Rain, who are in Ville Platte, who are in Church Point, who are in Acadia Parish, um, who are in these very small pockets um, building power. He's able to organize them and bring them together. And so our partnerships really give us the ability um, to grow our presence in communities. And so if you're doing that work, if you're interested in doing the work, even if you're just an individual and you're interested in being an advocate, helping to advocate, you want to be a phone banker. You want to help us with research again, because we have to do a lot of research. If you want to help us by bringing snacks to an event, you can join these calls and get engaged with our work. Um, my only ask as the state, state organizing manager is that anyone who joins with us, don't be a bystander, right? You know, I know we have to observe to see, do we want to be a part of this? Is this some, don't, but don't, don't just stay an, an observer, get active right? Get active. And we provide the space for people to have that opportunity to get active and stay active. Because one of BBM's most popular sayings is we 365, can't stop, won't stop, right? And so we, we also have to do those things where we can get some rest too. And we can have some intentional healing. I'll make sure people have in the episode notes, your contact, uh, whatever contact okay. you'd like for them to have. So if they want to connect mm -hmm. with you, they have that ability. I did statewide conference calls that were kind of table calls where we convened organizations back in 2017 when Trump first oh. got into office and we Ooh. did those, we did those weekly and they, they were really Ooh. Great, because they were opportunity for folks who had been organizing for a while to speak to a lot of those new groups like the Indivisibles and folks like that mm -hmm. who were just coming to it. So we really were able to mm -hmm. connect some folks so they could learn from existing organizers who had already who knew how to do stuff like protests and rallies mm -hmm. and marches and mm -hmm. petitioning and legislators mm -hmm. and stuff. So that was really nice. But the reason I bring that up is because there was. Uh, a rate of attrition for me during that year where mm -hmm. it was a little hard to keep uh, folks engaged through the whole year. Mm -hmm. And I've just wanted mm -hmm. to know what, what your experience with this, that was, what you do to make sure people stay engaged. And, and I'll tell you one mm -hmm. thing I noticed you did the first time I was on your call was you offered follow-up one-on-ones with everybody, which I thought mm -hmm. was really great. Like you had a system mm -hmm. where, where you connected back with folks and said, yeah, I want to speak mm -hmm. to you. If you're new to my call, I want to talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. I thought that was really mm -hmm. great. But are there any mm -hmm. other things that you're doing to keep people engaged? Well, you know, number one, I think really being, and I just mentioned it, so it's the perfect question, being intentional about like taking space from the work. Because I think a lot of times what I see is like you were doing those weekly calls with Indivisible back in 2017. Like Ooh, I got to like bow down to your sister because that is a high level of commitment. And just like life 
is stressful. And then being in the work is stressful and can be traumatic sometimes because we define our wins and losses in ways that can be hard to take. So one way that we keep people engaged is by saying we're taking a break right now, right? And so, you know, BBM in July, we take a step back the first two weeks of July and they're very intentional. Like we're taking a break. We turn off our emails. Do not disturb. We don't have the month, the, the call for that month. And so when we come back, we come back with a renewed spirit and commitment to the work. So that's one way. And then in terms of the one-on-ones that we do with our partners, that is a testament to the fact that transformative work, systems change. It is about that tedious, nitty gritty, everyday follow-on, follow-up, documentation, note-taking, linear work. And it requires follow-up. There should be no one who says that they're in the movement or they're running a movement space and they have only had one conversation with somebody. It takes multiple conversations, multiple touches, multiple ways to engage to really, like, we're building something. We don't start with the ground floor, but okay, the the foundation's there, see y'all later. (laughs) Then we got to build the rest of this, right? And we got to do it together. And so I think, as you said, and I appreciate that, you know, I, I do think the one-on-one is a powerful way to do it. Um, but we also lean into joy and happiness and having some fun, right? Because again, the work is heavy. And mm-hmm. so that is actually one of one of the key principles of, B- of Black Motors Matter is that we know the struggle is real, but we also have to celebrate our humanity and our our community, our togetherness, just like we have to do that and incorporate that into the work. There will be times where we got to say, hey, I got to take two weeks back. I got to take a step back and that is okay. But we still have to on our journey, on this struggle, because we're doing a long game, as our national field director says, this is the long game. We, we have to take some time to just just be ourselves, be human and be happy. I love that. You're in Shreveport still, but you're statewide, right? You're mm-hmm, still organizing mm-hmm, statewide. Mm-hmm. What are some yeah. of the Louisiana campaigns that BBM has been involved in? For example, I think you were involved in redistricting earlier this year. Are, mm-hmm. uh, t- talk to me, first of all, about the redistricting. There's been a suit for both the House and Senate legislative maps, which Black Voters Matter is a, um, a co-plaintiff um, in that case. Um, that is currently awaiting results from the Supreme Court. Um, uh, And so that, as well as the congressional map case, which of course a lot of people knew about that because that was the fight to add an additional majority minority congressional district um, in Louisiana. And so the governor vetoed the, the map that the House and Senate put out saying that it was illegal under section um, two of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and uh, then they did a special session and they passed the map. And y'all right. were, but y'all were involved in pushing back against that, right? Yeah. So we, we did what we call the redistricting takeover. And we showed up at the Capitol in Baton Rouge. We brought the big, the blackest bus in America and we organized testimony. We organized um, for our partners, most notably the People's Promise Youth Division 
showed up and showed out. It was young people in high school who were talking about the gerrymandered map in their specific parish, which they came from up north, represent up north. Um, and, and we also had other partners to testify about their experience in, in terms of their district and how any changes about representation, because really that's what it all comes down to. Many Louisiana decision makers are not ready for the population of Louisiana, the black population of Louisiana to be fairly represented. And so it is a fight that has gone out of the hands of the legislature and now to the courts. Mm-hmm. First the state courts and now the Supreme Court, right? The Supreme Court has weighed in and is weighing in for Louisiana to have fair representation for its black population, right? And so we think about like why folks are are so tired um, of voting. It's because election after election, Louisiana has like the most elections of any state in the country. Yes. <laughs> and throughout yes. a year. So we're constantly voting and we're not seeing change that's commiserate with the amount of elections that we have to participate in. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so when you talk about like attrition and like people kind of falling off, people are falling off because like we're tired. And we've been, we've had people who in our partner network have been fighting longer than I've been alive. Mm-hmm. And here I am, and I'm their comrade and fighting an issue that they've been fighting for generations. That can be so, it, it, it could be, it could take the spirit right out of you. It could, take, it could take everything out of you, right? For that to be your experience in terms of change. And so I, I don't even remember what your question is, but I know that I know that people are tired, but we at Black Voters Matter, we are fighting for it and we're still building because as I said earlier, it's a muscle. It's a muscle that we're building. And we're not quite ready to flex it. So we were talking about campaigns and I'm using that term loosely that you've been involved in. So they're redistricting. Yeah, redistricting. You did, last year, the Freedom Ride bus came through. Mm -hmm. Was that in relation to the voting rights legislation? That yes, they were trying yes, to push in DC. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and actually, Louisiana, New Orleans, Louisiana specifically, jumped off the Freedom Tour, and we were able to engage at the Treme Center um, with some actual um, Big Duck. Yeah, say who that is. Original. Say who that is. Jeremy Big Duck Smith. He was one of the original Freedom Riders, right down from New Orleans, and he was actually able to come and talk with us. Um, because, you know, a lot of our, our freedom fighters from that age um, of the movement, which we know was like, whew, the stakes were so high. A lot of them are getting older. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to be in the current work and fight for the f- current work with folks who laid the blueprint for how we move now was in- was an incredible honor. Um, and then we were able to go to the Ashe Cultural Center Cultural Arts Center, which I don't, I don't know if you've been there. Of course, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, they are a beacon within the community. And we were able to bring Big Doug there and have a, a community conversation around the fight for voting rights and what has happened. And then we went from Louisiana all the way up to D.C., where we had a humongous rally with Unite Here, the Poor People's Campaign, um, for voting rights. So... Yeah. And you honored some freedom, some exi- some still living freedom riders at that event. Right, 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 right. right. 
and I saw the video, Barbara Arnwine said that mm -hmm. from 2016 to 2020, Black voter turnout had increased by 17 million votes. And that was scary mm. to the folks who want to suppress Black votes. So they've ramped up their mm -hmm. efforts. And that's part of what mm -hmm. we see in that redistricting fight y'all are having. Oh, my gosh. Let me tell you something. We have, and I want to be exact, but we have 942,872 Black voters in the state of Louisiana. And I can only imagine how scary that number probably is to, to many people who are making it harder to vote, right? Those are the people who are already on the rolls, who already have their rights to vote, who are already of age, right? All they have to do is be activated. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about a state Senate race and you say, we can never have a black statewide representative on the federal level, I'm here to beg to differ. The map shows you that there could, people of conscience in Louisiana and black voters and people of color, we can elect a candidate on the statewide level. We can do it. But it's just about the work that happens in between the elections. That's right. Um, that will give us the ability and capacity to do just that. It's the organizing work that needs to be done. And I'm just going to tell you, your founders, Latasha Brown and Cliff Albright. Cliff Albright. Mm -hmm. Wrote an article recently that changed mm -hmm. how I'm thinking about the support I get because I give I'm a small dollar donor, but I give donations to mm -hmm. a lot of candidates. But their argument was that the people who are actually turning voters out to vote that are swinging these elections are groups like yours mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Power Coalition, New Georgia Project, folks who are on the ground mm -hmm. turning out voters. And that mm -hmm. was sort of lightning bolt to me where I'm like, I need to change how I think about my small dollar donations and start sending them to those places where folks are actually doing that three, uh, 60, 365 organizing work and turning mm -hmm. voters out, speaking to people, making sure they understand wh why it's important that they vote and the opportunities the, the possibilities, I should say, that, that you're talking about, the possibilities for statewide mm -hmm. elected officials if, if folks turn out to vote, they won't ever know just from a candidate putting ads yes. on TV or yes whatever. It, like it's that engagement that y'all are doing that's really the root of how we can change our elections. And that requires funding. That requires support. That requires funding. So many people think that this work is all volunteer, right? Mm -hmm. There's that misconception. But when we say capacity, we mean tools and resources and training, but we also mean money, right? And so I'm so glad that you mentioned that in terms of like changing your perspective about how you invest your resources into this work. Because as someone who has been a campaign manager, I will say a candidate can't inspire the people. And we've seen that through the turnout. A candidate can inspire the people like the people can inspire the people to just get out there and use your power. Politics many times can be so transactional, but what we're doing is transformative. And so I'm glad that you're putting that in the perspective. And that that's a real conversation that we really need to have, not only statewide, but nationwide, about how dollars are invested into this work um, on, a, on both a state level and how we can work with folks like you and others to really increase that infrastructure and increase that 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 um that capacity 
for us to really continue this work in the way that we need to do it. Right. We spoke in a video before we started recording the podcast about an amendment that was on our ballot in Louisiana this past mm -hmm. election. I want to visit that for a little bit again here. Constitutional Amendment 7. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know, and that's the amendment where the, the phrase that, that you've mentioned before is slavery was on the ballot. Mm -hmm. What happened there? That that was a process that I will say happened um, over two years, right? It didn't start this year. It started really in 2021 um, when decarcerate Louisiana, Curtis Davis and Larry McGriffin and Reverend Alexis Anderson, Maria Harmon and others um, in the social justice um, community came together to author legislation to remove the slavery exception clause from the Louisiana Constitution. And so that first year in 2021 that they brought it forward, they really met up with a lot of opposition in committee. In 2021, it didn't even get out of committee. That's how much opposition it had, right? So um, I know Representative Seabaugh um, was one of those legislators that really had some major concerns about the implications of removing slavery language from the Constitution, right? And so that was 2021. Fast forward to 2022, decarcerate is at it again. They've worked with their national partners, an abolished slavery national network that is working with the Freedom Five. Because as you mentioned earlier, this bill or this ballot initiative wasn't just up in Louisiana. It was also up in Alabama, Tennessee, Vermont, Oregon, and then, of course, Louisiana. So we were a part of that Freedom Five movement to remove slavery. So. 2022, the bill comes back up. They found their sponsor again and Representative Edmund Jordan, and it passes unanimously out of the committee, out of the House and the Senate with 30 sponsors. So now the bill is ready to go to the, the ballot. And it became Constitutional Amendment 7. So it went from HB 298, SB 298, became Act 276, and then Constitutional Amendment 7. And now the people get to decide whether, yes, they want to remove slavery um, and involuntary servitude as a punishment for a crime for the Constitution or no. So we were ramping up organizing efforts to get the vote out and to really explain the language. And then we were hit by a whammy when the sponsor, Representative Jordan, uh, actually put out an article. Uh, it, he didn't put out the article, but it was some business publication. Uh, where an article came out that Representative Jordan was urging people to now vote no. The sponsor of the bill was now urging people to vote no because of unintended consequences that to this day, I really don't, I have not heard one unintended consequence that could happen. That has not been explained to me or any of the experts that I've been having conversations with or the advocates, organizers, like what those unintended consequences could be. That has not been named at this point. But what I do know is that more than 60% of the state voted to keep the language. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier in our, in our video interview, what happened with Constitutional Amendment 7 to remove slavery and involuntary servitude from the Constitution was a one-two punch. First, the language was confusing to begin with, right? So mm -hmm. we're, we're going from accept as punishment for a crime to accept in the lawful administration of criminal justice. So that confused people. 
Because then people start to ask, well, does that change anything? Well, the answer is yes, it does. But people, but people were, were rightfully confused. Right. And then the, the knockout punch was when Representative George, the sponsor of the bill, came in and began urging people to vote no. And like dominoes, it went from Representative Jordan to the Democratic Caucus to other groups around the state that people trusted and listened to urging people to vote no. Right. Um, and so that, that it became a fight that I think was not estimated. We thought that it was going to be a slam dunk, especially since it passed unanimously, that we would at least be able to appeal to voters of conscience and Black voters to let them know slavery is on the ballot. A yes means that we remove this exception from our constitution, a no means that it stays. And so because of that one-two punch, here today is, a, I guess, a plan or a strategy to take it back through the legislature in 2023 to fix the language. There will be a large level of participation from the community and whatever happens and however it happens. But what I first see is there, this looks like it could be another fight in the legislature right. that could have easily been avoided, Right. It seems to me like it would have been easier to pass this and then fix whatever language next year because you'd be forced to fix it because it had passed rather yes. than say, we'll take another bite at the apple and try to pass the right language next year. Because as you pointed out, 2021 could happen again and it could just get killed in committee. Yeah. And But folks who don't deal with the legislature a lot aren't going to understand yeah. that. Those Right little specifics like that. And mm -hmm. I'm going to mm -hmm. say something that's Linda talking and not Omari, because I think you'll have something mm -hmm. to say behind this anyway. But uh -huh. this is for me. I just want to be very clear mm -hmm. that having spent over a decade in a political space and specifically mm -hmm. Democratic Party politics in Louisiana, I just mm -hmm. want to say that politicians often have political considerations with what they're telling you. Whereas for me, I like to trust the community groups. They're more likely to be telling you information based on what's best for the people. So that's mm -hmm. why when people asked me how I plan to vote on that amendment, my first stop was vote, voice of the experience, to go to mm -hmm. them and say, hey, what are y'all recommending on this? Because I knew that they would not steer me wrong on, on this sort of issue. Um, but I know you made a comment that I think's important. So I want you to let you make it again on the video that mm -hmm. we did, that it's not about an individual legislator. You didn't want to kind yeah. of put the onus on an individual legislator. And I just want to let you kind of repeat that. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and it's not so much that we don't put the onus on an individual legislator, because I think there is most definitely a level of accountability that will have to be directed to the decision maker. However. Yeah, on a broader level, we have to really tackle and target the issue, not the person, right? When we're designing campaigns and strategies, it shouldn't be focused just on the people who are making the decision, but the system itself, right? Because when we are understanding and tackling it from a systemic approach, then we're taking all things into consideration, which means we're bringing the right people, the right organizations, the right entity to tackle those individual processes and systemic issues that are causing us the problems to begin with. When Representative Edmund Jordan was born, he didn't say, let's put slavery in the Constitution, right? right. That happened far before any representative that we're dealing with today was even born. And so 
what we have to recognize with that being said is that we are tackling systems that takes a long time. That means that sometimes we have to um, we have to take the depersonify it. I don't know if that's a word, but depersonalize it, right? Um, and be very objective about it while also creating ways to call people in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I say that as opposed to calling people out. Right. Because right. I operate off of the no permanent enemies and no permanent allies, right? Because we're dealing with an issue, not the person. So that's where we stand on that in terms of how we deal with accountability. Um, but also one of the easiest ways to hold someone accountable is in the ballot box. You don't have to, it's no front to face, front to face to face, right? It's not confrontational. You go into your private booth and when the 2023 House and Senate elections come up and we're thinking about those legislators who made it harder for us to remove slavery from our constitution, when we get in that ballot booth, we make sure we don't press the button next to their name, right? We press the button next to the name of the person who we know holds our best interests at heart. Well, how do we know that? How do we find that out? That's that organizing that happens mm-hmm. in between and during elections where we as individuals and as communities understand who holds our best interests at heart. We look at their voting record. We look at the things that they've done in the past that demonstrate that they can help our communities, right? We look at the things that they've said, how they're moving, who they're talking to and who they're not talking to. And then we educate our friends and our families on that information that we're receiving, that information that is pivotal and critical in a language that people understand, in a language of the people. I do want to have a lesson that we take away from this episode being that folks should listen to their community groups first and foremost. Please do. I want them to know. Because look, people were rightly upset when they came on the other side of this and the story started to come out that Louisiana left slavery in the Constitution and people were like, no, no, no. So when they started to process that maybe they voted the wrong way or or didn't have all the information they would have liked to have had going into the voting booth, they were rightly upset about it. And so I just want to make sure people have the right places to go to get information Mm -hmm. on these issues when it happens again. You have a radio show. You had Curtis Davis from Decarcerate Louisiana on. I thought that was a really good explainer on the issue. I'm going to link to that. You have a video on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I I thought he framed it really well, Mm -hmm. that it was just a first step, that this was just a first step, that we aren't going to get all the change we want in one day or one fell swoop. I don't know if you have Mm -hmm. comments Mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm in complete agreement. Look, I'm following the leadership of, of people like Curtis and and Laramie and decarcerate um, because, you know, number one, Curtis actually spent 25 years at Angola. And he talks a lot about his experience uh, as someone who has served time in the penal system in Louisiana. And he talks about his experience of picking cotton, right? And being paid pennies on a dollar. So... That's who I'm following, right? So just to your point of like community, um, following the people in the community, following people who have been impacted, it's like literally critical. Like you gotta do it, just like bottom line. But in terms of the piece around first step, absolutely. That's why it was so disheartening when we, 
saw this misinformation campaign because to me, again, because I have not heard anything, anything tangible about what those unintended consequences are, to me, what I witnessed was a misinformation uh, campaign, right? And so this is a first step to educating our people on not just Constitutional Amendment 7, but on all of the systems and processes and issues that impact us in a way that gets to the people that is understood by the people and is actionable by the people. Is actionable by the people. That election, whether your person won or didn't, regardless of whether that that bill, to me that could have been a slam dunk that didn't pass or, or even though it did not pass, was just the first step. That first day in the gym, you're not gonna walk out looking like uh, The Rock. <laughs> it was just one day, you know? We, we did we did our our push-ups and our our leg things we we we've done a good workout but we got some more workouts to go so right so don't burn yourself out don't pull a muscle take that break drink that water but just know we're gonna be hitting the gym again December 10th and then after that we're gonna have to hit the gym again and for these house and Senate and for the gubernatorial race in 2023 not to mention we got leg days at the legislature right? Uh, and, and there will be so many different policies in terms of uh, this particular fiscal session that impact us. And so there's a lot of work that we have to do. And I I honestly left out of Tuesday, and I hate to say this, I feel like it's low-key disrespectful. Even though we re-elected Senator Call a Crackhead, okay? Right. Even though we re-elected him, I leave knowing how powerful we are. The bomb threat at Kenner shows you how serious people are about keeping people from getting out to vote. We're powerful. We just got to tap in. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I want to say to people, I know it's frustrating, but don't tap out. Right now is the time to tap in. I guarantee. I really guarantee. And I do want to mention, again, your radio show. First of all, first of all, I love the framing of the gym. Your, your framing of this oh. is going to the gym. But thank you. <laughs> but also your radio show seems like a good place for people to go in the future to get yes. good information. When is that happening? How can people access that? So you can tune in live to What's Up Nation that broadcasts on 99.7 KMJJ um, up here in the street, well, in the northern Louisiana area. But you can tune in live on Mondays. You can tune in live on Mondays at noon. So catch us doing your lunch break and then it syndicates on Sundays on the radio. So for listeners, for anyone who is watching or, or is listening uh, in the northern Louisiana area, if you turn your dial to 99.7 KMJJ, you'll be able to hear me on Sundays at noon. So tune in to my Facebook or my Instagram um, and I'll send that information to you, Linda, so that you can share out um my social media you can tune in there live mondays at noon for the show what's up nation also known as Wu nation where we really dissect political issues of consequence um popular issues of consequence anything that impacts our community we talk about it but we also walk away with a call to action that's great you've also been connected to the Louisiana chapter of the Poor People's Campaign which is the I have movement founded yes. by Dr. Reverend William Barber. Is that I still active here? So the Louisiana Poor People's Campaign, there have been, look, that was another training ground for me in terms of like really like fusion movement, bringing together 
various causes and various groups to build a large mass people's movement. Um, and I really want to see more from the Louisiana Poor People's Campaign here. I think that something, if someone wants to take up that banner here and like really grow that, there's so much potential there. I mean, from bringing in the arts community, um, the, the, the faith communities of all different faiths, the disabled community, uh, to really talk about that, to talk about the demilitarization and, and the environmental justice issues, systemic racism and poverty, um, what they call the ills of society and systemic racism, that movement can really, really, really do some things in Louisiana. And so, you know, anyone who's, who's interested in like, you know, any faith leaders and any members of the clergy, folks who consider themselves impacted by the three evils of systemic racism, poverty, demilitarization, or um, the war economy, rather, um, reach out and let me know. I, I know one of my good colleagues, she was doing some things. And I know Sharon Levine does a lot of things in terms of the environmental justice piece around the Louisiana Poor People's Campaign. But that's something that I really want to see grow. I want to see it grow. Okay. Well, I was checking my timeline. You were our mm -hmm. organizer of the month exactly one year ago. Yes, uh, indeed. So, so it's been a, been a year since we first nominated and you. Or, or you were I nominated and, and celebrated. And that's oh, my nice. certificate right there on the wall. You yes. got your award on the wall. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> you also nominated, uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying the name, is it Breca Peoples? Breca Peoples. You've done some mm -hmm. work together up there in North Louisiana, right? Man, Breaker Peoples is like one of the, the realest freedom fighters of our generation. Seriously. Seriously, yep. Up here in North Louisiana. And she also works and advocates across the state, really wherever she's needed. But that was, um, she, it was some of her group that went with you to the redistricting conversations, right? The, yep, yep, yep. She brought her People's Promise and her youth division, the People's Promise youth division. And she's actually, not only did they, did she engage them and provide training for advocacy, she's also sent some of them to some of the most prestigious colleges in the nation. Uh, and so she had a, a recent Tulane um, student, someone who started at Tulane this year, someone who started at Stanford this year. Um, and so she is really training up and engaging our youth in a way that I've never seen done before. The organizations you're working with, when are y'all planning to get together to look at 2023 and what you want to do there? We have definitely had that conversation. And one thing that I really want, um, you know, people to think about is like, are there people in the community who could get in some of these races? Are there people in the community that you would like to see? Right. Because we really have to deepen our conversation around vetting candidates, right. Who represent our interests and our ideals and will push our agenda unapologetically. And so I, I know that it takes resources, but I think that we need to start having those conversations and start putting our people in place. And then we'll talk about the resources later, right? But let's find the people. Let's find the people and really build that. Um, but, you know, again, it's, it's just gonna be another day at the gym. We're gonna have to really flex, you know, we're gonna have to really build so that we can have a conversation about what role our House and Senate play in our legislature, what role the legislature plays in our state, what policies they impact, what things do they preempt? Are there certain things that our local cities 
could have more ability to do, could have power over our our pay standards and our vacation. You know, um, you know, what power, what role does the legislature play? What resources do they have power over, right? So we have to start now having the conversation with the public about what role the legislature plays. What role do they play? What role does their legislator play? Who is their legislator? Who is their on the House side? Who is their legislator? And on the Senate side, who is their senator? What is the difference? Have they had a conversation with that person? So let's start doing that education now so that when it's actually time to start doing that phone banking, having those conversations on the phone, when it's time to start knocking on doors, we've already educated people on the role those offices play and we can start to really engage people. Um, and I also invite people too to consider issue mining. Issue mining and really figuring out what are those problems? What are those concerns that folks in their community have? And then we develop a strategy and messaging that resonates with that. Thank you for saying all of those things, both candidate recruitment to all the way to the last thing you just said, that was all highly important. With all the nonstop advocacy work you do, you mentioned joy mm -hmm. a little earlier. What are you doing yes. for self-care and how are you making space for joy in your life? You know, honestly, I'm like Nike, I just do it. I just do it, right? Look, I mean, because seriously, you know, as a mom, I'm a mom of two boys. I have an 11 year old and a one year old. And um, that keeps my life interesting. But I have to like be real serious about prioritizing just like spending time because this job never stops in a way. Like, yeah, I try to wind down around five or six, but I get calls at 12, one in the morning sometimes regarding the work, right? Um, because again, we're dealing with people and people's issues. So mm -hmm. there, there's issues don't clock out. The problems of humanity don't clock out, unfortunately. But we, when it's time for us to reclaim our time and spend it with ourselves, our family, our tribe, our community, you know, like sometimes we feel guilty when we take that space. And especially when I was a teenager, my mom would tell you, I didn't have no problem taking a nap. <laughs> pausing, pressing stop. But as I got older and became a mom and really, you know, really like got deep into this work, I started to feel like, oh man, I'm taking a break. I could be doing something, anything. You know, I could be looking at my calendar. I could be making a call. I could be checking on so-and-so, you know, I could be writing. I could be on. So there's always something to do. That's right. But we have to like really be like Nike and just like take that space. I don't care if the space is 30 minutes. I don't care if the space is putting your phone on do not disturb. I don't care if that space is taking a nap when maybe you should have been on another meeting or been at another meeting. You know, um, you know, anything, any spending time with your children in the middle of the day, going to the park, you know, what whatever that space is to keep us healthy, to keep us in the work, I do it unapologetically. So if you can't find me, Trust me, I'm not worried. I'm over there taking a nap, spending time with the babies at the park, whatever, right? And I and I think that's something that we should continue to push, that the world will continue to spin if we take a break. It will continue to spin. And so let's not be guilty about it and let's just do it. And it's really important because 
as you've said over and over again, this is not just 365. It's never, there's no end to it. Right. I mean, this is, this Mm -hmm. is lifelong commitment. Um, and through different phases of our lives, we may have more or less time to invest in it. But when we're in one of those Mm -hmm. times, when we're investing a whole lot of time in it, as you mentioned before, you'll burn out if you don't take, take the time for yourself. Yeah. You got to do it. So just do it. So let's get to the last three questions. I ask a version of every episode. Okay, because I do have to get in the car line soon. I'm sure that you do. I appreciate you giving me so much time <laughs> today. So um, no problem. Omari, what's the biggest obstacle to progress in Louisiana? Anti-black racism. And it's something that you would think that just white folks do that. It is a system. And everything, every, look at the policies. Like we got a really obviously obvious one this time about slavery and how they're using prison labor as the new slavery, right? That's that's anti-black racism. And because who who is disproportionately impacted by mass incarceration? It's black men and women, black mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. So that's just one example of how those pervasive systems that were built to keep a certain group of people in their place impact everybody. Mm-hmm. And I mean, everybody, no one, no one is immune. I don't care if, if you're not black, you're impacted by anti-black racism because it is embedded into the system and the very way that we do things, the way we do elections, the way we choose candidates, right? Because as we've seen, and I, I think that the Poor People's Campaign has such an astute and eloquent conversation on this, that this systemic racism leads to poverty, which impacts every color, right? It impacts it impacts everybody, right? Um, it leads to this war economy. It, it leads to communities being impacted disproportionately by cancer because factories and uh, entities and private businesses think it's okay to put their toxic chemical making factories in the middle of poor and black communities. Call it what it is unapologetically, because if you can't name a thing, you can't fight a thing. If you can't name it, what is it? We have to we have to name it unapologetically and fight it together. And then we're gonna see everybody's situation improve. And what's our biggest opportunity? The people. Because again, like I don't care what happened Tuesday. I saw people of all stripes doing their duty, helping helping to mobilize their friends and family members, uh, digging into their humanity to make it work. We just got to keep that up. Now, now we are the army. We are the freedom army. Those of us who did the right thing and do the right thing for every election and in between elections, we are the freedom army. And now we have to get more recruits. And I'm here to say that that 947,000 black registered voters that are there, that is, those are recruits that are already ready. They just have to be reminded. So this is not an impossible thing. And we know as white folks are conscious in this state. I'm talking to one, right? And, and there are many. There are things that Linda can say to a white folk that I can't say that will be effective. That is that is a part of the work. So we organize in our communities and then we come together to fight the beast. 
to fight the system, right? Together. So we have a lot of opportunities. We've got a lot of opportunities, but the people that, it's the people that are gonna take advantage of the opportunities. December 10th, we have an opportunity. November 2023, we have an opportunity. November 2024, we have an opportunity. And then between that, we have uh, other opportunities to organize and build together. I love it. Amari, who's your favorite superhero? Ooh, I, I have a few. So can I name like two, one that I know personally and one I don't know personally? Absolutely. Okay. So so this is going to be cliche, but my mama is definitely my superhero, right? Black woman in the South, um, born daughter of a sharecropper who was born in 1916 in Talladega, Alabama, and a homemaker in the South, went on to, to become educated and took a job I would never take, became an accountant. She deals with numbers. She deals with numbers. And that's not, that's like so literally <laughs> the complete opposite of who I am. I do, do not put a number in front of me, okay? I'm a freak out. I like words and people. But she she's done that and, and she has sewn into me and helped to not just inspire who I've become, but has actually supported it provided that capacity of building, right? For me to be able to not just be a change maker, but have the ability to raise my family, have the ability to be healthy and be a change maker. And so she's my hero, right? Because she's made this happen, literally. But the hero that I don't know, who I would have loved to have met is Ella Jo Baker. Because her story and her philosophy has taught me how to really organize, right? The union sent me to tens of dozens of trainings. I've been to trainings with Black Voters Matter and other community organizations, but it, it was Ella Jo Baker's approach and the fact that in this community that I live in, in Shreveport, Louisiana, in the 50s, Dr. King came here twice. The second time he came here, he said he would never come back because he believed that many of the people here were too afraid to do anything about racism. But when he said he would never come back, Ella Jo Baker came after him and she stayed. She stayed for several months to organize, to register people to vote. Not register people to vote, but to organize, to register black people in Caddo Parish, Louisiana, to vote in a place that they referred to as Bloody Caddo. She stayed, she had one-on-one -on -one conversations, she had lunch with people, she helped people in their time of need. And then on that faithful day, she had people all around the block, hundreds of people lined up the, at the Caddo Parish Courthouse to try to register to vote. If she could do that in, in 1958, I can actually use the tools that we have now to register people online. We can do it online. She had to do all that just to get people to line up to try and pass the poll test to register. If she could do that through building relationships with people and meeting people where they are, we can do so much in 2022. We can do so much. But she always said, you don't need strong leaders when you have strong people. And we are all strong people within our own right. We just have to be reminded. 
We just have to be reminded. So Ella Jo, jo Baker has taught me, and she actually inspired the Ella Jo Baker Movement School that we lead as a program with ASAP, where we teach how to build movement and how to organize. And so she, those are my two heroes, my mommy and my Ella Jo Baker. Well, those are powerful answers, Omari, and the spirit of both those women live on in you. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for sticking with me through some technical difficulties. I know you've got to get to the carpool lane, but thank you so much for everything you do. Oh, thank you, Linda. And I appreciate you and Louisiana Lefty. Um, you know, and I, and I hope that you continue your work. Thank you for your support and your encouragement. The work continues. And we are going to really shut it down in Louisiana. Just you see. Just you see. Thank you for listening to Louisiana Lefty. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you to Ben Collinsworth for producing Louisiana Lefty. Jen Pack of Black Cat Studios for our super lefty artwork. And Thousand Dollar Car for allowing us to use their Swamp Pop Classic Security Guard as our Louisiana Lefty theme song.